Today's scripture is from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. Before we jump in here, will you guys join me in praying to God that he might bless our time? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Some of us are just, we've got a lot going on in our mind. We feel really scattered. Some of us do feel very, very exhausted and tired. I know there are so many here who are suffering with physical and mental ailments. Lord, there's an awful lot of us who who our our hearts feel like dry ground. And so we cling to the promise that you've given us in your word that you will pour out water on dry ground, that you will will bring streams of living water from our hearts. Lord, I pray as we come to your word that we would get a clearer vision of who you are, your glory, your strength, your power, and your beauty. And I pray that as we see that, we would... We would be open to receiving conviction where we need to be convicted of sin in our life. I pray for people here who need comfort, that they could come to your word as we come to your word, that they would receive comfort. Lord, I pray for us as a people that we never do this lightly. We never go just go through the motions and come into your word, but we come to it with a spirit of expectancy, knowing that you speak through your word by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we want to be attentive to him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in planning the series, the pastors, we actually talked about the fact that we would be preaching these texts that are traditionally preached around Christmas, they're Advent texts, in January, which kind of feels like the least Christmas time all year. And we wondered, is that going to be strange? And one of the pastors actually spoke up and said, maybe. 
But maybe it's actually good for us to look at these texts outside of the Christmas season because we'll see them with fresh eyes. And I got to tell you, in coming to this very familiar text at an unfamiliar time, we have the opportunity to see how strange and powerful this text really is. It's a story of ancient astrologers, a murderous king, dramatic cosmic displays, and spiritual complacency all wrapped into one. And it's a fascinating text, like Matthew's gospel as a whole. This one is it's layered and it's rich. And so what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to walk through this story, and then I just want to talk about it a little bit draw out a couple of implications, things that God has stirred in me in spending a week before these few verses. And so we're going to start in verse 1, where Matthew sets the scene. If you were here last week, uh, Dr. Pennington preached on the birth of Christ. And so Matthew's pick, picking up here. This is probably six months to a year and a half after Christ has been born, if you want to put this on the timeline of Jesus's life on this earth. And Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And I want to hit pause for just a second because there are, there's one character and one set of characters here, Herod, and then the wise men, also known as the Magi. I used to think it was pronounced Magi, but I was wrong. And so I'll probably get that screwed up a lot. I appreciate your grace in that. But these two groups, Herod and then this group of, of wise men, the Magi, for the original Jewish readers, when they heard these names, they would stir memories, emotions, even mental images that maybe don't get stirred for us. So a little background I think is really critical to understanding what Matthew is trying to communicate here. Herod, also known as Herod the Great, he was appointed the king of Judea by the Roman Senate in about 30, around 30 BC. And the, the Roman Senate actually gave him the title, and this is important, they gave him the title King of the Jews. Now this was a sore spot for the Jewish people that he was ruling over because Herod was not a full-blooded Jew. He was a half-Jew and he didn't descend from the line of David. So the, the religiously devout Jews knew that this guy had no right to claim the title King of the Jews. And Herod's relationship with the Jewish people, it was kind of up and down. Uh, he worked really hard to live into that title, Herod the Great. I mean, you get a sense of who this guy was with that title. His, his like vision was to make Judea great again. He was the originator of that whole concept. He engaged in just colossal building and architectural uh, endeavors. If you've ever heard of Masada, the fortress, he built that. He built numerous fortresses. Uh, his greatest architectural achievement was rebuilding the Jewish temple, of which the western wall of that temple, it still stands today. Now, in his final years, when this account takes place, Herod, he's kind of gone off the rails. He's become very paranoid and very violent. Uh, he had nine wives. He killed his favorite wife and at least two, probably three of his sons, because he thought that they were trying to steal the throne from him. And he was just an explosive guy by this point. And so when when Matthew's original readers would read this, they hear Herod, they got all of that swirling around in their mind. And then you've got the Magi. 
And these guys, they are fascinating, but they're also mysterious. We don't know a whole lot about them. Matthew tells us that they came from the east. Most likely they came from Persia or Babylon, which would be modern-day Iran or Iraq. And basically the, the Magi, they were, they were astronomers and astrologers. They would study the stars, but then use that study to discern the times and to understand the times. Even more than that, these guys were known for interpreting dreams, predicting the future, and sometimes, as the name suggests, they would actually practice magic. Now, in their home country, these men were men of great power and prominence and influence. They would sit on the courts of kings, kind of like presidential advisors. And so from Matthew's original readers, he would hear wise men, magi, and think of just these kind of strange, mysterious men from the east. And so that's Matthew setting the scene. And what he tells us are these magi, they come from the east. It's a very long journey. They roll into Jerusalem with a question. They start asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, let, just sit with that for a minute. They don't come and say, where is the king of the Jews? Because they would say, well, like, you know, Herod's palace is down this way. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, again, this is another one of these mysterious verses in this passage. What the Magi are saying is we were studying the stars and we saw something, some cosmic display, and there has been... A lot of ink spilled debating what this cosmic display was. Uh, was it a supernova? Was it a comet? Was it an angel? We don't really know. All we know is the Magi saw something in the star or in the sky over Jerusalem, and they took off in that direction. And so the question becomes why? Why would they do that? And there's a bit of a speculation and guesswork we have to do, but. Uh, but the best educated guess we can give is we know that there were Jewish, there was a Jewish community in Babylon. Uh, we learned that from da Daniel. And so these Magi probably encountered some Jewish people. They probably had read some of the Hebrew scriptures. They, they most certainly knew about the promise of a coming Messiah. And in studying the Hebrew scriptures, there's a good chance a verse that people go back to a lot is in Numbers 24. There's a prophecy about what happens here in Matthew 2 prophet Balaam, who wasn't even Jewish. He made this prophecy. It's a fascinating story. I don't have time to explain it. But he said this, I see him. This is the prophecy, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, we read that, and we're like, that's, that's interesting, I guess. But for these guys, they probably highlighted it in their Bible. And then when they saw this cosmic display in the sky in the west, they're like, that's him. We think that's the promised Messiah. They connected the dots. And so they take off on this incredibly long journey to Jerusalem. They roll in. They start asking around, where is the king? Well, word gets to Herod that this caravan of probably dozens of men from the east are inquiring about this child born that they're claiming is the king of the Jews. And you can imagine what's going on in Herod's mind. Matthew tells us when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. In Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
And so Herod hears that these guys are claiming that the king of the Jews has been born. So he calls all of the scholars, the seminary professors, the experts. He's like, hey, where in the Bible does it talk about this Messiah? Where is he going to be born? And that was an easy answer for the chief priests and the scribes. They knew the Bible by heart. And they're like, it's easy. It's Micah 5, 2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So they're like, it's going to be in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is only about six miles, five or six miles from Jerusalem, real close. So they tell Herod. Herod calls these magi back in, and he tells them. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. Now, we know what happens after this, but you can even, even on first reading, you get a sense that maybe something sinister is going on in Herod's heart here. He knows that the child's born in Bethlehem. He sends the Magi. He says, hey, go find him. And after you find him, come and tell me, because I, I actually want to come and worship as well. So he sends them on the six-mile journey. Matthew tells us, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star, this cosmic display that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are gifts given to kings. They're royal gifts. And then Matthew ends part one of this account by telling us, that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed to their own country by another way. That's the end. We'll pick up kind of the second half of the story, the story that's deeply connected with the story next week. But the question I've been wrestling with a lot this week is why does Matthew include this here? Why include this story? If you were here last week, uh, Dr. Pennington talked about how Matthew begins his gospel with these five origin stories, five carefully selected stories that tell us about Jesus' background, where he came from, what his life was like before he began his public ministry. And so last week we looked at the birth of Christ, which seems like a good thing to include as an origin story when telling someone about their life. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' baptism and his temptation also make a whole lot of sense to include in someone's origin story. But why this one? <laughs> why include this story, this kind of strange story, alongside such mon monumental texts as Jesus' baptism, his temptation, his birth? I think there's a couple of reasons. But I think one of the reasons Matthew puts this here is he's preparing us for what's coming in his gospel. Matthew, he's using this story to show us the inescapable reality that any real encounter with Jesus, it forces us to respond one way or another. That any real encounter with Jesus, it's going to demand a response. 
and throughout Matthew's gospel, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, we see that people, they respond to Jesus, his person, his teaching, his claims, his miracles. They respond differently, but everyone has some kind of response to him. Some, like Herod, they're threatened by Jesus' teachings. They respond with hostility. They respond with murder. We're actually going to look more at Herod's response next week. But today, with the rest of our time, what I want to do is I want to focus on the response of the religious leaders, and I want to contrast their response to Jesus with the response of the Magi. The reason why is because this this text, as I've been studying it, I really feel like God has worked, worked some truths down into my soul here. The pastors, we've had really encouraging conversations as, late, as of late. We're really excited about what God, we, we believe God is doing and where he's leading us as a church. And sitting here looking, especially studying the religious leaders, something that didn't stick out to me at first but really jumped out to me is how the chief priests and scribes responded to the announcement of Christ's birth. And I feel like there's a real warning for us here. So when Herod comes to the men and says, hey, apparently the king of the Jews has been born, where would I find them, find him? All of the smartest, most devoutly religious people in the day, they're all gathered together and they're like, that's easy. Micah 5-2, Bethlehem, give us a hard question, Herod. It's not surprising they knew the answer. I mean, these guys aced their sword drills in Sunday school. They graduated top of seminary class. These guys were as orthodox, let's be clear, in belief as you could get. It's not surprising that they knew the answer. What's surprising and what's actually downright shocking is their response, or rather their lack of response, to the claim that the king of Jews had been born. Because they hear this, they hear these men came on this great long journey with gifts, the star in the sky. They hear these massive claims and they can't even be bothered to close their books, put on their sandals and take a six mile walk down the road to see and investigate if that claim was true. They were there. (laughs) The greatest hope that that the people of God have ever had of this coming king. (laughs) I mean, this is the promise. Like, there's a lot of promises, but this was the promise, the greatest one. And word is spread. The promise is being fulfilled in your midst. And they can't even stop playing backgammon, you know, or whatever they're doing to go and see if it's true. See, these, these men, they had... They had some measure of belief in God and faith, but their faith was lifeless. They had orthodox beliefs, but that orthodoxy, it was a dead orthodoxy. And I stole that phrase from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He actually has an entire chapter on this idea of dead orthodoxy. And if you know anything about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he was a evangelical preacher, um, phenomenal preacher, phenomenal Bible expositor in the middle of the 20th century. But he was very much a buttoned-up guy. Like, he had a lot of starch in his shirts. He would wear suits all the time, even to the beach. Uh, so if that, that tells you something about this guy. He's not, he's not super relaxed. 
And what he said is this, this phenomena that he calls dead orthodoxy, he says that of all the dangers facing the church, this is by far the greatest. That's fascinating coming from someone like him. He doesn't say sex, drugs, rock and roll, certain sins. He says, when I look at the church, the greatest danger to the church is a lifeless faith, a dead orthodoxy. So I want to press into this a little bit from the text. What do I mean when I say dead orthodoxy? How does it work? Dead orthodoxy, number one, I've got three points with this. Number one, dead orthodoxy emerges when we settle for knowing about God rather than knowing God. That's where it begins. When we settle for knowing about God rather than knowing God. Quick question, see how many of you are willing to be honest at church? How many of you have ever stalked someone online? Like not criminally stalked, just like Facebook, Instagram, you like click and you kind of go look through all of their things. Anyone? A few of you? All right. How many of you ever watched a reality TV show? Like really watched it or maybe you visit TMZ. I would admit to that in church, but, uh, or you read uh, Us Weekly or People Magazine, right? This, we live in this interesting age, this interesting culture where for the first time in history, we as a people think it's normal to peer into the lives of other people without them knowing we're peering in. Through the majority of human history, that would be viewed at the very least as very weird, if not criminal. In our day, it's normal. And so what happens is we peer in and we kind of see and we learn some things. And this weird thing, like our brains do and our bodies do this, we, we see it and then we start to think that we actually know the people or we talk about them like we know them. If you've ever heard people who talk about reality TV shows who really get into them, they'll like talk about the, the people on the show like they know them. Like, I can't believe he said that. That's so not him. He never acts like that. <laughs> I can't believe she wore that dress. She knows that's not going to look good on her. It's like, but you don't know her. But you think you do because you've peered in. I didn't grow up in a religious family. But my family was very religious in our devotion to watching Seinfeld together. We watched... Every episode, multiple times, we would record it and watch it a couple times throughout the week. Love Seinfeld. I've seen it every episode multiple times. And for my birthday, my senior year of high school, uh, my brother actually got me tickets to go see Jerry Seinfeld live at the Taft Theater in Cincinnati, and, which was an amazing gift. And we had really great seats. And I'll never forget, we went, you know, we're sitting probably from here to the back of the room. And he walks out on stage, and it was truly bizarre. Because here's this guy that, like, I feel like I've spent an awful lot of my life with. And here he is before me. And my brother and I were kind of, like, giddy, you know, to the point that I get giddy. We were kind of giddy about. And then the reason Jerry Seinfeld's Jerry Seinfeld is because he actually named what we were feeling. He was like, this is weird for you, isn't it, right now? We were like, it is. It's like, you've spent a lot of time with me. I'm the man who lives in the box inside your house. And now the man who lives in the box inside your house is standing before you. Like, it's true. And then he said, you know what's really strange, though? You think you know me, but you don't know anything about me. You think you, you come and, he's like, after these shows, people will come and talk to me like we're friends. 
And he's like, I am not your friend. I don't even know you. <laughs> and when I think about how we relate to God, I can't help but wonder if that's sometimes true of us. Learn things about him. We learn at a distance. We settle for knowing certain things about him. And then we fool ourselves into thinking that we actually know him. It's one of Jesus' critiques of the religious leaders. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you, you refuse to come to me. And so what Jesus is saying, like, Jerry Seinfeld doesn't want to be my friend. I couldn't know him even if I wanted to. What Jesus is saying, I want you to come and to know me, but you're content with keeping your nose in the book. And the whole book's about me, and you refuse to come to me. Dead orthodoxy, it emerges when we settle for knowing about God rather than actually knowing the living God. When that happens, the next thing that comes is that dead orthodoxy, it replaces a spirit of expectancy with a spirit of complacency. What I mean by that is this. When we settle for knowing about God, like when we settle for studying God, like you might study, I don't know, some field, botany or a tree. You're just content to learn some things about him, but not actually know him. Then God ceases to be real to our hearts, and he just becomes kind of an abstraction to us. And when God becomes an abstraction, then our faith ceases to be a living, dynamic relationship with the living God, and it really becomes like a philosophy for life. And I think there are a lot of people who, for them, Christianity, it's not about a dynamic relationship with the living God. It's really a philosophy for life. Like, I have my Bible. My Bible tells me what to do. I do all the things it tells me to do. I feel bad if I don't do those things. I feel good if I do do those things. And I do all of that, but I don't even know God. And when that happens, and I think it's a temptation for all of us, when our faith becomes a philosophy for life, instead of an active dynamic relationship with a living God, then we lose any sense of expectancy that the living God who's actually active in our world might actually move in our midst. When God ceases to be real and alive in our hearts, we lose any sense that he's actually going to show up and do something. And we become these functional atheists. I mean, we believe in God, but functionally, we think the universe is a closed system that he's outside of, and he's never going to do anything in it. In a spirit of expectancy that God might show up and do something. It's replaced by this spiritual complacency of like, whatever. It's always going to be like this. It's always been like this. It's always going to be like this. And that's what happened for the leaders here in Matthew 2. They don't have the faith. They don't have the holy imagination necessary to put on their sandals and take a walk down the road. And because they didn't have that kind of hope, that spirit of expectancy, they missed their king who was curled up in his mom's lap two hours down the road. Think of how tragic that is. They gave their lives, longing for this day, and then they missed it. Anyone here a fan of the movie Rudy? Anyone not a fan of Rudy? 
I kind of like Rudy, but if you haven't seen the movie, it's about this guy who spends way too much of his life chasing after this goal of playing for Notre Dame, and he gets one tackle, and it's the end of the movie. Uh, <laughs> sorry to ruin it. Spoiler. Uh, and you watch it, and it's kind of like, I don't know, there's parts of it that are inspiring, but in the end, you tackled a guy. Like, that's your life. But at least you got to make a tackle. Think of the tragedy of these men's lives. They claim to worship God. They claim to teach people about God. And God is down the street, and they completely miss him. And their legacy throughout all the ages until the end of the age are the guys who couldn't bother to put on their sandals and go for a walk because the spirit of complacency had replaced the spirit of expectancy. Another way you could put this is they, they had great biblical literacy, but they knew nothing of biblical longing. Maybe that connects with some of you. You have great biblical literacy, but do you actually have biblical longings? Biblical literacy without the longings, it's not a living faith. When I look at my life, when I look at the church, when I look at the American church and where we're at in this point in history, I just... I can't help but wonder, have we lost any sense of expectancy? Have we, have we lost all, all notion that God might actually show up in our churches, in our lives, in our country, or in our world and do something dramatic and powerful? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I referenced earlier, he wrote this, talking about this idea of spiritual complacency which really stirred a lot of my thoughts. He said this, speaking of the church, and this was 75 years ago, but talking about the complacency. He said, we go to God's house, not with the idea of meeting with God, not with the idea of waiting upon him. It never crosses our minds that something may happen. The idea that God may suddenly visit his people and descend upon them, the whole thrill of being in the presence of God and sensing his nearness and his power never even enters our imaginations. There is no conception that God may suddenly meet with us and that something tremendous may happen. We must examine ourselves. How often does this vital idea enter into our minds that we are in the presence of the living God, that the Holy Spirit is in the church, and that we may feel the touch of his power? Is there not this appalling danger that we are just content because we have correct beliefs. And he finishes by saying this, we expect nothing, we get nothing to us. We have lost the life, the vital thing, the power, the thing that really makes worship worship, which is spirit and the truth. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it stung because it's so easy for a spirit of complacency to overtake us and rob us of living in a place of expectancy on God. Now, when we exchange knowing the living God for just knowing about him, and then this spirit of complacency replaces an expectation that God's going to do something, then this third one makes sense, which dead orthodoxy it ultimately, ultimately, with that orthodoxy, we exchange a longing for power from on high for a lust for power on this earth. Once those first two things have happened, 
the kind of the next domino that's going to necessarily fall is instead of longing to be filled with power from on high, we're going to lust after power on this earth. And that's what we see here. Where do we see it? Verse 3. When Herod hears that the king of the Jews has been born, Matthew tells us when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now that's not surprising. He was paranoid. He felt threatened. What's surprising is that all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Why is Jerusalem troubled? It's the king. Now, some of it's probably, they knew Herod was an unstable man who didn't like to feel threatened. And so some were terrified what this news might, might do, afraid it might set him off, but there was more to it than that. Many of the people in Jerusalem had gotten so used to his rule that some of them had actually advocated that the people of God should just submit to his rule for the sake of political expediency. The Herodians, you can read about them. They aligned themselves with Herod. They made a lot of compromises. And, you know, they lobbied with him. And what happened is they actually got a decent amount of power and money and prestige in their society, but they've worked all their life kind of getting into Herod's inner court. And so now they're hearing that the king of the Jews is here, and it's like, wait, no, no, no. I've been working really hard to get to the position I'm at. This is troubling that someone's claiming there's another king. I mean, it's absurd, right? <laughs> Instead of longing and praying for God to move God's people, we're lobbying for Herod to show them favor. And they had so aligned themselves, and they had so enmeshed themselves with this paranoid megalomaniac that they'd rather maintain the status quo and retain some worldly power instead of encountering the all-powerful living God. Your real king is here, but man, I've got a good gig with this false king. I've got some power and influence and some money. Life's going pretty well. A sure sign of dead orthodoxy is when God's people are more passionate about grabbing for power in this world than they are about receiving power from on high. And that power, it could be political, it could be money, it could be platforms. But when we start grabbing after worldly power, it shows that our souls are deeply disordered. Because we know that all real power comes from God who created everything. And I'm not saying politics are wrong. Politics are important, but something's gone terribly wrong in the church when we start to believe that our world's greatest problems will be solved through worldly power. It's our world's power that got us into this mess. And it's only God's power that's going to get us out of it. And I know some of you, you're here and you're exploring Christianity and everything I've just described, you're like, yeah, that's what Christianity is to me. It's people who know a lot, they're really smart about the Bible, they talk about things that are over my head, they seem kind of complacent in life, and they're constantly grabbing and lobbying for power and culture of the world. And I would say that's, that's not Christianity. It's not what's held forth in the Bible. It's dead orthodoxy. And what I love about this passage is that in contrast to the dead orthodoxy of the religious leaders, stands the Magi. And the more time I spend in this text, the more amazed I am with these men. Because you know what set these men apart from the religious leaders? 
besides being racial outsiders, not knowing much. You know why they're honored in this text? It's because they were hungry for God, and God honored their hunger. The more I study their life, the more amazed I am by them. Think about this. They, they had scraps of the Old Testament. They heard rumors about a Messiah. They saw something in the sky, and they're like, you know what? Let's head from Babylon to Jerusalem, which isn't a six-mile journey. It's about a thousand-mile journey. You couldn't get on a plane, you know? You brought your camel and your caravan, and you set off for anywhere from three to six to nine months, and it was incredibly costly. It was incredibly dangerous and incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, could you imagine being the wife of one of these men? Comes in, hey, we saw this thing, and it kind of connects with this thing, but we think God might be doing something, so I'll be back. When? I don't know. I emptied the bank account. I'll be back. Why? Because we think God has come. <laughs> I can see God. And so why wouldn't we do this? So they roll into Jerusalem, and they're not afraid. They're wandering around. Hey, where's the king of the Jews? No, no, not him. The one that was just born. And then they hear the word, and what do they do? They respond to the word in faith. And Matthew tells us that as they're journeying the six miles to Bethlehem, and they see the star resting over the house, Matthew says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And i got to be honest, I don't even know what that would look like. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like, is that your team wins the Super Bowl tonight? Or is that you win the Super Bowl? And this is even before they get there. And think about it. They came in and said, hey, we saw the star. We know your king's been born. And the other guys are playing backgammon, like, yeah, whatever. And so they're like, but he's right down the road. You don't know what you're talking about. We know the Bible. They're like, okay. In their faith, they went, they saw the star, and then they start flipping out. And then you want to see real faith. They walk into the house, and they say, Jesus, who's a toddler at this point, with, with Mary, and they bow down and worship him. That's some faith. I've been around a lot of toddlers in my day. <laughs> Had five of my own. Never been tempted to worship one of them. <laughs> but they were hungry. They had faith. They believed God's word. They poured out their treasures, which had to be a joy for them. And they got to see God. And in Matthew's gospel, they're, they're in a sense the first worshipers we have of Jesus. Now let that sit with you for just a minute. The first worshipers of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are fortune-telling tarot card readers from Babylon, from Iraq. Those are the first worshipers. Matthew's trying to tell his original readers, he's trying to tell us something, that it's not about your pedigree, your heritage, your knowledge, your expertise. None of that matters. What matters is are you hungry for God and are you seeking him by faith? And God honors us and our hunger and he honors our faith. These guys were hungry and God honored it. They didn't have to build up a spiritual resume. You know, these guys, their theology probably wasn't great. 
They probably had some weird stuff. In the, I mean, they're practicing magic. They probably had some weird stuff. But they didn't have to do any of that. They just came with all of their stuff, but they came hungry. And God honored their hunger. And the good news of the gospel is that God gives himself to us freely at Christ's expense. That we don't have to clean up our resume or build up our spiritual resume. We can just come. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you want to know God, if you're hungry for God, just come to him. Jesus makes this incredible promise in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And that's what Matthew shows us here in this text. If you're here and you're a Christian, you know this is what brings us into the family. But then something happens when we get into the family. Like one, we get a lot of stuff that's added on to our Christian walk. It's like, got to go to Bible study, church, community group. Got to start praying. Got to start reading my Bible. Got to serve. Got to live generously. Should do some evangelism. You know, maybe I need to do some counseling or maybe I need to receive some counseling. And the next thing you know, you got this backpack on that weighs like 100 pounds. But it's a good 100 pounds. Like all of those things are really important. And almost all of those, I would say, I don't think you can grow without it. Like they're essential. But then you're in there, you're carrying that. And then this other strange thing happens. You, you and we, we start talking about these big earth-shattering truths on a regular basis, and then we kind of grow numb to them. Like we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, and some of y'all are mumbling it, right? What a friend. It's like Jesus, the Lord of the universe, knows you by name, and he's your friend. That's a staggering claim. Or the claim that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God's Spirit it's poured into our hearts through faith by his grace. Right now, God's spirit dwells in us. And I'll confess, sometimes I kind of yawn at that. Like, yeah, it's fascinating. I don't know. Like these great, big, glorious truths, they stop being big and glorious. And it's, I don't want any of you to hear me as coming down on you. This is just the challenge of the Christian life. We've got the culture or the current of our culture going the opposite direction. We've got the gravitational pull of our own flesh that wants to take our eyes off of Jesus and the promises of God. And then we've got a real enemy who would delight for us to all be really good people who don't have a hunger for God. And then we come to church and it's so easy for us. It's just easy to lose our passion. It's easy for truths that once exploded in our hearts and transformed our lives to grow Dull. And before we know it, it's really easy for us, for our lives to more closely resemble the lives of the religious leaders than the lives of the Magi. We easily slide from a living faith to kind of a lifeless religion. And J.C. Ryle, he was a pastor a couple hundred years ago, and he said this, There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. And I thank God that through Christ our salvation doesn't depend upon our passion for him. Anyone else want to give an amen to that? Like I'm glad that my salvation is not dependent upon like how excited and hungry I feel for God. My salvation is dependent upon the finished work of Christ. So is yours. I want to be really clear on that. 
But I also want to be really clear that God doesn't want us to grow content with a life of going through the motions. God doesn't want us to suffer through a life, and I mean suffer through a life of spiritual complacency. And so how do we, how do we avoid it? And I don't know. It's great, right? When the preacher's like, I don't know. What do we do? I don't, I don't have all the answers. I just have one. And I think it's prayer. I think the way that we avoid spiritual complacency is we engage in regular conversation with the living God, both speaking and listening. And I know for some of you, it's been a really long time since you've prayed. And I think a lot of times the reason we're spiritually complacent is because our prayer lives are virtually absent. And so in your bulletin, at the bottom of the page, I don't have one on me. Oh, yeah, I do. If you open it up, at the bottom of the page here, I have some prayers for you. Short prayers, simple prayers. Some of you, you're, you're like, yeah, this is pretty true of me. And maybe the reason you're in a place where you just feel very spiritually dry is because you do have some kind of sin that's just persistent in your life. And you haven't been able to, to get out of it or break free from it. And I know how hard that can be. I've been there before in my own life. I think every Christian who's willing to be honest can say, I know what it's like to be entangled by besetting sin, but that's going to rob you of joy and passion and hunger. And so there's a prayer for you, the prayer of repentance, Psalm 51.10. Memorize it. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. For some of you, that's your prayer. Like, God, I don't like, my spirit's disordered, and I want a right spirit. Others of you, you don't have any particular sin in your life. You just don't have any joy. Like you hear about Jesus and God and the claims of the Scripture, and it's not like, it doesn't do a whole lot for you. Psalm 51.12, prayer of renewal. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. I love that verse. Bring the joy back and then sustain me by giving me a spirit that's really willing to worship you even if I don't always feel it. And others of you, you're like, no, I'm hungry. Like, let's go. Let's take the hill. We're ready right now. That's the last prayer, prayer for a revival or prayer of revival. It's from Habakkuk 3.2. I love this, this verse. It reads, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. So it's like I, I've read about what you've done in the scriptures. I've heard about what you've done throughout history. I've heard and read and seen these things. Lord, repeat them in our day and in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Even if we don't deserve it, God, reveal yourself to us. Do something among us. There's plenty of other verses I could have given you. But my prayer and our prayer as the pastors have been talking, we're going to have more of this to come in the future. I pray that we would be a church that's hungry for God and that's seeking God's face, not just studying the word, but even in our study of the word, that's us seeking his face. So as we come to the Lord's table, communion is one of these things that easily grows commonplace for us, but communion is so important because it reminds us that our standing with God isn't dependent or contingent on our emotions. 
It's contingent upon what he's done for us. We remember the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, objective fact and reality. And so we can come to the table with our brokenness, with our laziness, with our exhaustion. We can come wherever we're at and we can lay it down before him knowing that he loved us first and he loved us when there was nothing lovable within us. So if you're here and you're in Christ, I encourage you to come and feast. Let me pray. God, we thank you for we thank you for including the story of the Magi and not letting it get lost to history for the hope that it brings us. Lord, there's so much that we can pray for, but my prayer for us is simple. Will you stir in us a hunger for you? And we reveal yourself to us more and more through your word and by your spirit, which will only increase our hunger for you. God, may we never grow content and may we never think that you're not listening and you don't care and you're not present. So God, we come to you in humility, but we also come in boldness, saying send water on the dry ground, send streams in the desert. It's in Jesus' name we pray.